Hey everybody, welcome back to the Philly Young Adults Podcast. This week we're going to do something a little different. We're going to post the audio from our Monday night large group study. And we do plan on posting the audio every other week as we are meeting every other week at Calvary Philly in our large group format. Right now we're in the book of Deuteronomy studying through. And you'll notice as you listen to each episode that there will be some gaps in terms of the scriptures that we're covering because we're also studying Deuteronomy in our home groups. And so some of the weeks we're covering material in the home groups, of course, that won't be recorded. But we will post, again, probably every other week here, large group studies. And we hope you enjoy the chance to either re-listen to them or to listen to them for the first time. So here we go with the first study in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is the fifth book in the Bible, and there's a few of you that will understand what I'm about to say, which is, if you just finished studying through Deuteronomy with a guy named Mike, a couple of you are going to understand this. I'm sorry, I'll try not to just repeat his Bible study. So you'll find out how much I steal from Mike if you're like, we got to do this again? Hopefully it'll be different uh, for you. Uh, The reason we're going into the book of Deuteronomy is because we began studying through some of these oldest books in the Bible months ago with the book of Exodus, we moved on into the book of Numbers, and uh, I don't think we really stopped in Leviticus, did we? No. No offense to Leviticus. And now we're going to check out this book of Deuteronomy for a little while. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the chance to study your word. If anyone's new here, Lord, if any of these things are strange to them, I pray that you would come uh, by your spirit and make it unstrange to them and interpret what they're seeing and hearing and uh, help us all, Lord, to overcome our own. We just have such limitations, such weaknesses. Some of us had a really rough day uh, or we're expecting a rough week, something that throws us off, Lord. Some of us, um, I don't know, tired and anything, Lord, can make it hard for us to hear your voice in your word, to hear your word, maybe is a better way to say it, Lord. So we pray that you'd help us to do that tonight. Help me to say things that are helpful and transparent to this uh, text, Lord, that we're reading tonight. And we thank you for the chance to do this. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to start off like this. The longest chapter in the Bible, I was thinking about this as I came to study Deuteronomy, is how many, anyone know the longest chapter in the Bible? Psalm 119, and when you read Psalm 119, one of the things that strikes you is how many times the writer of that psalm, which is the longest chapter in the Bible, talks about loving God's word. That's what it's about. Most of you probably read it. Uh, Some people have called Psalm 119 a love song to the Bible, which is an interesting title. And it's not just that the writer of the psalm says that he loves God's word in general. One of the things that gets said over and over in Psalm 119 is that the author, the writer of the psalm, loves God's law. He loves his law. You have verses like this, uh, verse 113, I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. Or, I hate and abhor lying, but I love your law. That's 163. Or my personal favorite, verse 97, Oh, how I love your law. 
It is my meditation all the day. Oh, how I love your law. And that can sound kind of odd because I think most people don't get excited about laws. It's a pretty obvious, Captain Obvious statement, right? Most of us are not excited about laws. And it kind of sounds like being into, like you're into rules. I just love rules, right? Or something like that. But I want to start our study of Deuteronomy by reading something from a commentary I've been working through. Commentary is a book where a scholar writes a whole book about a book of the Bible. It's pretty cool. I like big, thick ones. This one's like 800 pages by a scholar named Daniel Block. And he is the man, if you like this sort of thing. Daniel Block is one of my fave New Testament, uh, Old Testament scholars now. Not that you care about any of this, but um, he gives us this the, the quote I'm going to read. And it gives us a different perspective on why someone would say they love God's law, and, and actually even what we should think of when we hear the word law in the Bible. So first of all, Block points out that the word law in our English Bible, when you see the word law, especially in the Old Testament, it's a translation usually of the Hebrew word Torah, or you might say Torah. I don't speak Hebrew, but I think you accent the last syllable. So Torah, Torah. And that word in Hebrew has a much broader meaning than our English word law. Usually, usually carries when we say the word law. So you could say that it means something like authoritative instruction. That would be a good short definition for the word Torah, authoritative instruction. And Block actually gives a list of the kinds of things that fall under the definition of Torah, even just in the book of Deuteronomy. So you have things that are called Torah, or will be called Torah, like divine speeches, autobiographical reminiscences, uh, reviews of historical events, promises of reward for faithfulness to God, strong exhortations, encouragements like a coach would give you, you know, come on, you can do this, warnings against defection from God, uh, a recitation, reciting the Ten Commandments, instructions for life and true belief, all these things fall under Torah, invitations to regular fellowship with God, all kinds of instructions on things like the administration of justice, military policy, ecological, economic, and agricultural practice, sexual morality, marriage, appeals for compassion to economically and socially marginalized. This is all from Daniel Block's commentary. The national anthem of Israel, you could call it, is in there. And um, Moses' final blessings to the tribe of Israel. So Block lays out that list of all the things that the Old Testament, the Bible means, the Old Testament is the part of the Bible written before Jesus, just in case you're not familiar. Christians call it the Old Testament. When you see the word law in that part of the Bible, which is most of the Bible, uh, what it means. And then Block writes this. This is, I think, pretty cool. So here's the quote from Daniel Block. For many Christians, the Old Testament in general, and Deuteronomy in particular, is a dead book. There's a good chance a lot of us in here have never read a Bible book called Deuteronomy, partly because the, the title's a little off-putting. You're not like, that does not sound, right? So for many Christians, these are dead books. So consequently, the favorite book of Jesus is ignored, Deuteronomy. The, sor- uh, the sources of a lot of John and Paul's theology is discarded, and the life-giving power of the Word of God is cut off. Unless we rediscover this book, he's talking about Deuteronomy when he writes, We will not treasure the Old Testament as a whole. This book presents the gospel according to Moses. That's a provocative title, but a very interesting one. The gospel according to Moses, Deuteronomy. This is a gospel of divine grace lavished on undeserving human beings. And some of you know these catchwords, these buzzwords, and you don't understand what he's doing as he writes this way, right? Moses' vision for his own people serves as a microcosm for the the divine vision of humanity as a whole. 
Moses' vision, I'll say that again, for his own people serves as a microcosm for the divine vision of humanity as a whole. I read that, I was like, that's cool. The book points the reader to the Lord God who has redeemed his people and assigned to them the mission of radiating his grace to the world. That's on page 59 of Block's commentary, in case you're interested. So I love that point, right? The, the vision that God lays out through Moses is a microcosm, he says, or you could you'd say a small picture of the larger vision that God has for humanity as a whole. So if you're here tonight and you're human, this book lays out a vision for you, right? There's just a direct connection. And that's one of the things that we keep seeing, I think, as we've been reading through these Old Testament texts, really old texts here on Monday night. The power and the relevance of these ancient writings in the Bible is because God spoke them. And he knew when God spoke them and had them written down that they didn't only speak to their original audience, they spoke to us too. They didn't just speak to the people who heard them for the first time, they spoke to us all down through the ages. So as we discuss these things in our home groups, like we did last week, we started discussing Deuteronomy, and, and we study these things together on large groups like tonight. If you get tempted to feel like these things are so old and so foreign that they have nothing to do with your problems, please remember, Deuteronomy, what the book is, is a record of the final speeches by a man, Moses, right? It's his final speeches, a man who knew God, and served God, and told his generation what God wanted them to know. That's what Moses is doing in Deuteronomy. And God's thoughts for the people Moses was speaking to, the people of Israel, are always, either either directly or indirectly, they're always indicators of God's thoughts for us. It's not always directly, right? We're not about to go conquer the promised land, and some of this book is about that. But in, at least sometimes directly, but always indirectly. They're, they're indicators of God's thoughts and his direction for us. And if there's one thing, I was thinking about this, if there's one thing our generation begins to take away from everything that's happened in the last few years, or I should say, if there's one thing I hope that they'll begin to take away. If there's one thing I hope, you look around, and maybe you can resonate with this. Wouldn't it be great if people could look at what's been going on, as far-fetched as this might sound, and realize that the way to progress, or maybe you could say the way to progress, is not to be obsessed with the new things that people make up. It's, it's not to look inside and press into bringing out you know, more of our pain or more of our desires and to find new human ideas to justify that and bringing that out in the public and then to head off in whatever direction those things point us, right? That's not actually the way forward. It, it's kind of like I was thinking of a metaphor. It's kind of like saying the way to drive a car is just point it in whatever direction seems good to you and like pedal to the metal. But if you don't know where you're supposed to be going and you don't know how a person can actually get there, it's not going to work. And you just start thinking, why are we so obsessed with going forward? So obsessed with going forward when we actually don't have any sense of direction at all. We don't actually know which direction forward is or what the destination is even supposed to be. And for a lot of people, that would be an annoying question to even ask, right? So, but there actually is a way to go forward. It's just that it's found in books so old that a lot of people write it off before they hear it out. And the words in the scriptures are old. We're reading very old words, but it doesn't matter because they're timeless words. They're timeless words. Or maybe a better way to say it is not that they're timeless, but they're eternal. What, it's one thing to be old, an old word. What does it mean to be 
to be an eternal word. These words were so meaningful and present and weighty that they were, as Moses spoke them, they were, they were ancient and new and fresh all at the same time for the first, per, first people that heard them. In other words, you could say they're the word of God. Isn't that what the word of God would be? G.K. Chesterton, some of you are familiar with him, has this great quote. We have, he wrote, old British dude from like 100 years ago, we have sinned and grown old. We have sinned and grown old. And our father is younger than we, as, meaning God. That's, that's a mind bender, right? You've never heard that. Some of you are like, I know I've heard that quote. But first time I heard that, I was like, that's heresy. Then I was like, wait, that's really cool. <laughs> right? We have sinned and grown old. Our father is younger than we. We're the out of touch ones, right? Because sin makes us old. But God is eternally young. Chesterton is trying to get at something there. Maybe not always the best way to say it, but I think you know what he's getting at. So we could say the same thing, I think, about the Bible. The Bible is young and strong compared to our our tired, worn out, already wasting away old ways, which means that we're going to be reading in Deuteronomy things that are fresher and more full of life than anything online or any influencer, or any of it, right? Even fresher than like Tesla. I know, it's hard to believe. That's what we're reading. And, and I, I don't know how to really put, like, I, I mean that because I know it to be true. I've tasted it, and a lot of you know exactly what I'm talking about because you taste it too. So here is the way forward. The wisdom of God knows what we need. The glory of God grows us up. The promises of God show the destination. The commands of God give us the roadmap. Jesus goes before us. The Holy Spirit leads the way. Isn't that all true, right? So that's kind of what I'm hoping for in Deuteronomy this summer. It is actually one of my favorite books in the Bible. It is a mountain peak in the Old Testament. A lot of you know I would say Isaiah is another mountain peak in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy is up there. So let's get into it. So we read chapter one together in our home groups last week. Chapter one recaps the story of Israel to this point. We're talking about things that are a couple thousand years old in terms of history. So after freeing them from slavery in Egypt, Deuteronomy chapter one, God led the whole nation to the border of the land he had promised to give them. And when they saw the land, they admitted that it was a good land. That was not in, that was not in dispute. But they decided that what they thought it was going to take to get the land was too dangerous and it wasn't going to be worth the effort. So it's a good land, but it's not worth what it's going to take us to go get it. So they decided, we'll go back to Egypt where we had been enslaved. But God loved them. So obviously he refused to let that happen. He's like, no, you're not going to go back to Egypt and be slaves. That's just not in my plan for you. But he did declare in that moment that the generation of adults or I should say that that generation of adults had shown, those people who refused to go in the land, they had shown that they weren't able to enter the land. So the whole nation, the whole group of people, they didn't get to go back to Egypt. They were going to have to wait for 40 years before they could go in, in which time all those adults were going to die off, and then their kids would grow up, and their kids would go in, and they would inherit the land. So when you read the first few verses of chapter 1, look at the first few verses. These are the words which Moses spoke to all Israel on his side of the Jordan in the wilderness, in the plain opposite Suf, between Paran, Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth, 
and Dizahab, I guess is how you would say that. It is 11 days' journey from Horeb, uh, where they received the Ten Commandments, by way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. Now it came to pass in the 40th year, in the 11th month, on the first day of the month, that Moses spoke to the children of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him as commandments to them. So that's the setting of the book, those verses there. Again, this book is mostly a record of the words that Moses said to Israel after they had spent 40 years or so wandering in the desert. And at this point, when this book opens, they were standing on the brink of actually doing the thing that they had come out of Egypt to do. It was finally going to happen. The next thing that was going to happen was that they were going to go in and actually conquer the land. That's what the book of Joshua is about. But first, here in Deuteronomy, we have the record of all the speeches that Moses gave them before that happened. Look at verse 5. On this side of the Jordan, in the land of Moab, Moses began to explain this law, saying, The Lord our God spoke to us in Horeb, saying, You have dwelt long enough at this mountain. Turn and take your journey, and go to the mountains of the Amorites, to all the neighboring places in the plain, in the mountains and in the lowland, in the south and on the seacoast, to the land of the Canaanites and to Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. See, I have set the land before you. Go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give to them and their descendants after them. So again, remember that Moses here was speaking, at at this point, he was speaking to people who had either not been born or basically they were just children when the history that he's recounting, he's recounting history, and they either weren't born at the time of the things he was saying, or they were like, they were kids, at least younger than any kind of adult that could go do the battle that they were going to need to do. So it was important that the people who were actually about to go into the land of Canaan and inherit it knew their national story. So he's sort of repainting that picture for them so that when they lived in their new land, they would have a shared sense of national identity, right? That's one thing a national story does. And also a a deep sense of the place that God had occupied in their whole history. They needed to know their history and who they were and where they had come from. So again, Horeb there is one of the names for the mountain where God came down in fire and gave the Ten Commandments and the beginnings of his law for them. Now look down at verse 19. Look at verse 19. He says, so we departed from Horeb and went through all the great and terrible wilderness which you saw on the way to the mountains of the Amorites, as the Lord our God had commanded us. And then we came to Kadesh Barnea, and I said to you, so again, it's, I said to you the nation, but it's really mostly their parents, right? I said to you, you've come to the mountains of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. Look, verse 21, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up and possess it, as the Lord, your God, uh, the Lord God of your fathers has spoken to you. Do not fear or be discouraged. And every one of you came near to me and said, Let us send men before us, and let them search out the land for us and bring back word to us uh, of the way by which we should go up and of the cities into which we shall come. Verse 23, The plan pleased me well. So I took twelve of your men, one man from each tribe, and they departed and went up into the mountains and came to the valley of Eshcol and spied it out. They also took some of the fruit of the land in their hands and brought it down to us. They brought back word to us, saying, It is a good land which the Lord our God is giving us. Verse 26. Nevertheless, you would not go up. You wouldn't go into the land, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And you complained in your tents. Remember, the command was, Go get this great place. And they rebelled against that command. And you complained in your tents and said, Because the Lord hates us, he has brought... 
I wonder if anyone in this room has ever been tempted. Right? That's, that could happen to you. I think God might hate me. And we could laugh about it, but that was so serious. Like, you, it can be in a dark place. There they are. Because the Lord hates us. Not true at all, but that's how they felt for whatever reason. He has brought us out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Where can we go up? Our brethren have discouraged our hearts. This is the spies of the land, right? Saying, the people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. Moreover, we've seen the sons of the Anakim there. No, I guess was scary to them, right? So we read this story together a few weeks ago. And here, I just want to point out the first thing that becomes important for our study tonight. So much of the story of Israel is a story of failure. And if you know your biblical history, you know that, a story of failure. And this particular one was a big one here, a big failure. This was national failure right at the beginning of their national history. This is the beginning of their life as a nation. And the beginning of it is utter failure. They, they failed to trust God. They failed to obey God. If you were reading the story from the time of Exodus, you realize they're actually even failing to act rationally. And Moses actually had to deal with it. Look at verse 29. Then I said to you, do not be terrified or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you, he will fight for you. This is how it's going to work. According to all he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son in all the way that you went until you came to this place. Verse 32. He says to the people there, yet for all that, you did not believe the Lord your God who went in the way before you to search out a place for you to pitch your tents, to show you the way you should go in the fire by night and in the cloud by day. And the Lord heard the sound of your words and was angry and took an oath saying, surely not one of these men of this evil generation shall see that good land which I swore to give to your fathers. So as we read, keep this in mind. Everything that happened in Israel's history, everything that happened in Israel's history from from here on is set against this background of their failure, of Israel's failure. And, And so I just said that even though these things happened a few thousand years ago, as part of the word of God, this story is new and fresh because it's timeless and eternal. And, and one of the ways that's true is that, connected to the block, Daniel Block quote I just read, the story of Israel is actually the story of the whole world. Adam and Eve received the land, the first two humans, and they refused to trust and obey God, and they sinned their way out of the land. And so, All of human history, all of human history is set against a background of human human failure. You could say it happens in the context of human failure. And and so that means that every every one of our lives is caught up in the same human story. Like our lives are, are, this isn't all that can be said, especially once you come to Christ, but, but it can be said that our lives are part of a huge story of human failure. And I just think you, you go through your life, and maybe if I was talking to the junior high group, they wouldn't know this yet, but this group will understand what I'm about to say. You go through your life, and you go through things, and I think you start to wonder, why is this so hard? Like, what is wrong with the world? And what's wrong with me? What's wrong with my life? Like, what is going on? And the Bible actually gives us story after story that speaks to this. Sometimes I end up saying that to people, like, listen, it'd be one thing if you opened the Bible and it told you that everyone's life was perfect. No one ever struggled. And just had story after story of, like, perfect lives and perfect people. 
and a loving father and mother who take care of their kids in the best way. If that was the Bible, then you should shut it. It doesn't apply to your life. Today in staff meeting, uh, I don't even know if I should share this because it's only a half a thought. We were talking to Pastor Joe about what he might teach for, for, uh, for Father's Day. And he was like, yeah, like a good, you know, just an example of a good father in the Bible. And all the pastors sat there and we were like, and like two minutes in, I was like, this is crazy. I have never actually realized this. Name me one story in the Bible that's about a really, one story that's about a really, a guy who marries one woman, takes care of his kids, raises them up to follow the Lord. Like you can, you can like infer it because you have this godly son and, but like, do you, you guys understand what I'm talking about? Those of you who know the Bible, scan your mind through the Bible. I was like, oh, that's crazy. We're throwing out like these really peripheral figures. Like, well, you could do a story on like Simon of Cyrene because the two guys in Acts seemed like they were his sons and they were pretty good, right? <laughs> the Bible gives us story after story that speaks to exactly the kind of world that we inhabit. So again, sometimes it's a story of huge national things that go bad, like this story we just read. Sometimes it's small personal stories. But over and over, we're invited to see how much human failure has shaped all of life. And you have to start right there if you want any real insight into your own life. This, is, this could be a total like mind shift and super helpful, right? I cannot understand my life if I leave out of the picture how determinative, determinative human failure has been. Right, that might have been, it could be parents, it could be my society, it certainly includes my own failures too, obviously, right? And if I leave any of those things out, then my attempts to make sense of my situation are not going to get anywhere, and I'm going to come to all the wrong conclusions. So, in what we're reading here, on the cusp of their greatest victories, and Joshua is a book of victory, right? On the cusp of their greatest victory so far, they're just about to have that. Moses was like, pause, and he reminded Israel of their failures first. They, they would just not be able to make sense of their lives if they didn't remember their failures. So again, look at verse 34. He says in verse 34, and the, so here it is, right? Here's what went down that day. The Lord heard the sound of your words and was angry. And he took an oath saying, surely not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land of which I swore to give to your fathers, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, he shall see it. And to him and his children, I am giving the land on which he walked because he wholly followed the Lord. The Lord was also angry with me, Moses says, for your sakes. And said to Moses says, he said to me, even you shall not go in there. And we'll come back to that in a second. Moses had his own failure to deal with as he looked back at his life. But look at verse 38. Verse 38 says, uh, God says, Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall go in there. Encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. Moreover, verse 39, your little ones and your children, who you say they'll be victims. Verse 39 is an important verse if you have kids or if you want to have kids. People tell you the world is too dangerous to have kids, right? That's not a statement of faith, by the way. But, but, God, but God says to Israel, you said your kids were going to get devoured alive. Today they have no knowledge of good and evil. They're going to go in and take that land. To them I will give it, and they shall possess it. But as for you, this is what God had said to them back 40 years before, turn and take your journey into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. So at this point... Moses is recounting this story to these kids, right? At this point, the, the people decided 
They didn't like the consequences of their failure. They refused to do what God had said about walking away from the promised land, and they tried to do what God had said before about going up and taking the land, but it's not how it works. Look at verse 41. Then you answered and said to me, Moses says, we've sinned against the Lord. We will go up and fight just as the Lord our God commanded us. And every one of you girded on his weapons of war, and you were ready to go up into the mountain. Verse 42. And the Lord said to me, tell them, do not go up nor fight, for I am not among you, lest you be defeated before your enemies. So I spoke to you, Moses says to Israel, yet you wouldn't listen, but rebelled against the command of the Lord and presumptuously went up into the mountain. And the Amorites who dwelt in that mountain came out against you and chased you like bees, he says, right? As bees do. You ever been chased by bees? It's horrible. It's horrible. It's terror. And drove you back from Seir to Horma. Then you returned and wept before the Lord, but the Lord would not listen to your voice nor give ear to you. So you remained in Kadesh many days, according to the days that you spent there. And we turned, chapter 2, verse 1 and journeyed into the wilderness of the way of the Red Sea, as the Lord spoke to me. And we skirted Mount Seir. We walked around Mount Seir for many days. And Moses says, many days there, and yet it was something like 13,880 days, depending on exactly how it would have fallen out, of wandering around in the desert. He's just like, yeah, a lot of days. And they were all like, yeah, a lot of days, right? And the people, uh, I should say, remember that the people Moses was speaking to, again, they were not the people who had failed that day. So so I know I keep saying this, but this is another part of the point. The people he's speaking to were not the ones who had actually failed that day that led to 13,880 days of wandering. It was their parents who had failed. So the people listening to Moses in Deuteronomy were people who up to this point, their whole lives have been dominated by their parents' mistakes. I mean, I'm sure at least someone in this room tonight can relate to living your whole life so far being dominated by the mistakes of your parents. There's got to be at least one of us in here, right? If not a third of the room. It's not just our own failures that affect our lives, right? It's the whole web of human failure we're caught up in. And in verse 2, Moses now continues the story. Chapter 2, verse 2. And the Lord spoke to me saying, you've skirted this mountain long enough. Turn northward. That was verse 3. Verse 4, and command the people, saying, you are about to pass through the territory of your brethren, the descendants of Esau, who live in Seir. They will be afraid of you. Therefore, watch yourselves carefully. Do not meddle with them, for I will not give you any of their land. No, not so much as one footstep, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. You shall buy food from them with money that you may eat, and you shall also buy water from them with money that you may drink. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hand. New King James says, this is my translation, he knows you're trudging through this great wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you, and you've lacked nothing. And we spent last Monday looking at that, verse 7, in our home groups. There's a lot to say about it, and it does tie into everything we're looking at tonight. But I want to press deeper into this first part of Deuteronomy before we come back to that verse. Starting in verse 8 of chapter 2, what Moses does is give the recent history of the events that led up to these days and these sermons he was giving in the plain there in Deuteronomy. So first in verse 8 and 9, he recounts how God had been very specific that Israel was not allowed to just attack anybody indiscriminately. For instance, they were not allowed to do anything to the people of Moab, he says, who were living right next to the land of Canaan. And then look down at verse 13, chapter 2, verse 13. There it says that God says this, Now rise and cross over the valley of Zered. So we crossed over the valley of Zered, 
And the time we took to come from Kadesh Barnea until we crossed over the Valley of Zared was 38 years, until all that generation of the men of war uh, was consumed from the midst of the camp, just as the Lord had sworn to them. For indeed, the hand of the Lord was against them to destroy them from the midst of the camp until they were consumed. And so it was, when all of the men of war had finally perished from among the people, that the Lord spoke to me, saying, This day you are to cross over at Ar, the boundary of Moab. So there it is in verse 14. Forty years is like a round figure, but he says it took actually 38 years is how long the failure of their parents took to play out. Think about that. It took 30 years for the full sort of for it to play all the way out and be done, the failure of their parents. And now God was going to begin to work with them, the people that were standing there, and lead them out of lives so they were being, at Deuteronomy, it's a turning point. They're being led out of lives dominated by family failure. That's pretty cool, right? It's, that's over. That time's over now. You're not a little kid anymore. Your life does not have to be dominated by the failure of your parents anymore. And at this point in Israel's history, it's, just, it's going to be a whole new story. Look at verse 24. Rise, take your journey, and cross over the river Arnon. Look, I've given into your hand Sihon the Amorite, king of Heshbon, and his land. Begin to possess it and engage him in battle. This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you upon the nations under the whole heaven, who shall hear the report of you, and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. So it was no, don't attack Moab, no to attacking Moab, but yes to doing battle with the Amorite king, uh, Sihon, when he came out to attack them. And so the people began to experience some actual real victory for the first time in their life, some real forward motion. They weren't just wandering in the desert. Now things are actually happening. They're actually moving forward. It's a great feeling, right? And, and it was all by doing exactly what their parents had refused to do. They listened to God. They obeyed what he said. And they refused to let difficulty make them lose faith and avoid keeping God's commands. Chapter 2 now, verse 26, if you look at it, all the way down to chapter 3, verse 11, uh, t- Moses says there, if you scan your eyes over that, that the first thing that happened to Israel as they got ready to move into Canaan was that they were actually attacked by two different kings, not just Sihon, and that God gave them victory in both situations. So that's how it all began. They get attacked by these two kings, God gives them victory, and then look at chapter 3, verse 21. Chapter 3, verse 21. Moses says this, And I commanded Joshua at that time, saying, Your eyes have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings. So you've seen victory now. You know it can happen, Joshua, right? So will the Lord do to all the kingdoms through which you pass in Canaan. You must not fear them, for the Lord your God himself fights for you. Then I pleaded, now here, listen to this, verse 23. Moses tells the people, Then I pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, O Lord God, You've begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do anything like your works and your mighty deeds? I pray, let me cross over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, those pleasant mountains. It's kind of sad, isn't it? And Lebanon, verse 26. But the Lord was angry with me on your account and would not listen to me. So the Lord said to me, enough of that. Speak no more to me of this matter. Go up to the top of Pisgah, which I guess was a a high place there, and lift your eyes toward the west and the north, the south and the east. Behold it with your eyes, for you shall not cross over this Jordan. But command Joshua and encourage him and strengthen him, for 
he shall go over before this people, and he shall cause them to inherit the land which you see. So we stayed in the valley opposite Beth Peor, Moses says. So this is a little bit more information in the situation that Moses mentioned. We read it back in chapter 1, verse 37. Moses here was standing literally on the border of everything he had been working for for decades. Right over the river he was standing next to was Canaan. But he was not going to go up there with Israel because of his own failure. In both uh, chapter 1, verse 37, and here in 326, Moses says that God was angry with him because of the people. If you remember the account, reading the account, we read it just a few weeks ago, of what actually happened, you might actually think it was an odd way for Moses to say it, to say it was because of you guys. Because Moses himself, if you remember the story, had failed and messed up. There was definitely failure by Moses. At a critical moment in the wilderness, there was a water shortage, if you remember the story, and God was about to give them give the people water miraculously for at least the second time. But at that critical moment, will God provide for us? Moses is the leader. He's up front of every, in front of everyone, and he loses his cool. That's pretty convicting, right? You're a leader. You lose your cool. He badly, really badly, misrepresented God in front of all the people. That's what he did. And actually, he, he, I was reading this in Daniel Block's commentary of all the amazing things. This is a great point. He actually... What he did was he acted like he had the power. Remember the line, here now you rebels, he's hitting the rock in the scene. Must we bring forth water from you, for you out from the rock? He acted like he actually had the power to bring water out of rock. And man, he was so tired of doing that. You know, like, how many times do I have to get water for you from the rock? And he did the opposite of what God had told him to do. And so God's response to that was, you're not the one to lead the conquest of the land. Joshua is actually the right man for that job. But if you're hearing Moses kind of blame the people for it here, which he almost kind of does, the Lord is angry with me for your sakes, you might realize that the only reason he had even been in that situation that day to lose his cool in front of the rock was because the people had refused to enter the land at the beginning, right? If you follow the story, if they had just listened to Moses and obeyed and trusted the Lord at the very beginning, then he would have never even had the opportunity to fail, None of it would have ever happened. And he would have already been living in the promised land for a few decades at that point. And I wonder if Moses had spent years thinking, it's your fault God got mad at me. This is like so human. I don't know, maybe Moses had a bigger heart than me. I think I would have been struggling with that thought, right? Like, I'm only here. I'm only stuck here because of you, right? And this is one of those times where I just think we can bring our, as you're reading scripture, where we can just bring our minds to God and ask him, like, okay, this almost seems rough, right? But Lord, make my thoughts more like your thoughts. So what we actually see here is that no matter how much our failures are shaped by situations beyond our control, Moses' failure was absolutely shaped by a situation completely that was not his fault. No matter how much our failures are shaped by situations beyond our control, we see here that God will not let us blame them on other people. And that is actually a consistent teaching in the Bible. Even though it's true that we're all connected and we're all enmeshed in each other's lives and someone can make a choice that absolutely dominates your life and it wasn't your fault that they made that choice. Even though that's true, we're just, we're just a big connected organism, a body, the Bible says, Right? Still, 
The deep truth about reality, and this comes out in scripture, is that every man and woman stands responsible to, for, to God for what they do with their situation and the way they respond to God in the middle of their circumstances. So it was not Moses' fault that he was standing before that rock that day, but it was his fault that he beat the rock and flipped out. And no matter how bad my situation may be, I can always trust God and I can always obey whatever commands are actually relevant to that situation and whatever commands that I actually have the opportunity to obey. There's always commands, you know, that aren't relevant maybe and that I don't have the opportunity to obey, but there are always commands of God that are relevant and that actually do have the opportunity to obey. So the end of Moses' life was actually shaped by his failure, just like the first years, you know, the first 38 years of all these Israelites' lives have been shaped by their parents' failure. And, And yet, for all of that, look at what Moses says at the beginning of chapter 4 because I think it ties everything up so well. You really start to love, I don't know, you you start to love Moses if you're really reading this. Even though all that was true, look at chapter four, verse one. Now, O Israel, listen to what he says. Listen to the statutes and the judgments which I teach you to observe that you may live and go in and possess the land which the Lord your God of your fathers is giving you. I'm not going to, but guys, Listen to God and you can go get it. There's a big heart, right? You shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor. If you were with us, you read that story. For the Lord your God has destroyed from among you all the men who followed Baal of Peor. Baal is a false god. And there were men among them who had worshipped him and, and sinned the sins that Baal wanted them to sin. And, and Moses like, you remember what happened. Right? Verse 4. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are alive today, every one of you. That's a strong verse. Verse 5. Surely I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should act according to them in the land which you go to possess. Therefore, be careful to observe them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. That's what God wants people who don't know him to think about his people. That's a tall order, right? Wow. Those Christians are wise and understanding. Interesting. Verse 7. For what great nation is there that has God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us for whatever reason we may call upon him? So, No matter what Moses says, no matter what, God hasn't left us. Human failure does not drive God away. Verse 3 here of of chapter 4 says that worshiping idols does lead us to ruin in the end. Right? Rebellion, refusal to acknowledge God, refusal to acknowledge him as God. But no matter how much of that rebellion and idolatry is going on around us, no matter how much your world might be dominated by idolatry and failure, verse four can still be true of you. This is, what we're being, this is what's being held out. And all these people had had lives dominated by failure. Their parents started worshiping idols. Horrible things went down in their lives. But they held fast to the Lord your God. Isn't that awesome? And they were alive. And that can be true of you. It can be true of me. You can hold fast to God no matter what's going on in your house or your country or whatever. 
There is a little bit of that we've lost, right, in our panic over the direction of America. Like, we're not going to go down with the ship. In one sense, it doesn't matter what happens. It does in a lot of other senses. But you know what I'm talking about, right? You can hold fast to God, and you can live. God was with Moses, too, even though Moses had failed. And look at verse 7 again. God was with Israel as a whole, even with all of their failures. And that's the same idea behind what we read in chapter 2, verse 7. The Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hand. He knows you're trudging through this great wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you, and you've lacked nothing. So even when you're trudging through a wilderness of your own making, which they were, don't turn to idols. Hold fast to the Lord God. And then, even in wilderness... He'll be with us. That's the idea. He'll guide us. And what he does is he makes sure that the wilderness actually does the work in our lives that he wants it to. He can take the wilderness and make it into a school instead of just, you know, a a tomb or something. It's never actually the wilderness that destroys us. That's chapter 4, verse 4. You who held fast to the Lord your God through the wilderness— are alive. It's not the wilderness that destroys us. What ruins us, what destroys us, is turning to idols. That's what chapter 4, verse 3. It was the idols that destroyed you, he says. It's not the wilderness. So, again, verse 4, how do you actually hold fast to God? That's cool, right? You know, right on your fingers, the whole thing. How do you actually, like, hold? That's a metaphor, since you can't actually go grab God. I'm like, I'm never letting you go, right? We sing songs about it, but it's a metaphor. What does it actually look like? It looks like chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. You hold fast to God. You show that you trust him and not idols by keeping his commands. How are you going to hold fast to God? Listen to his word. Obey his word. Don't obey the commands of the idols. A lot of idols are commanding people to do a lot of things right now. Right now. And you show the God that you're holding fast to and the God you're trusting by the God that you obey. Verse 6 says that God wants the whole world to see the way God's people live again and then to be struck by what a better way of life that is. And look at chapter 4, verse 7 again, finally. Chapter 4, verse 7. This is just true, that verse. Verses like that should speak to us. They should just lodge in. That's a verse that should lodge in your heart. Right? And it should help you for the rest of your life. It's God's word, I think, for us tonight. And chapter 4, verse 7 is God's word for you, whether you actually know it or not. So you, you could actually be here tonight, and you might have no history at all with following Jesus or trusting God or the things we're talking about, you know, keeping God's commands or any of this. But that verse is talking to you. Maybe you're not actually part of God's people tonight. But you, but you can be. You could become part of it tonight. You could step into a life of knowing that verse 7 is true, of knowing that God is near to you for whatever reason you need to call on him. You could walk out this door as someone who, for the first time in their life, says, God is near to me for anything I need to call on him for. And that fundamentally changes the universe. I'm just going to tell you. It is a different world to live in. In the book of Acts, uh, it says that there was a day when the Apostle Paul stood in front of a crowd of people in the city of Athens who had less history with Christianity than people in America. They had, 
zero knowledge of anything to do with Jesus because no one had ever just heard of Jesus in that part of the world, ever. And Paul told them that God wasn't far from them. Some of you know the verse I'm talking about. That their whole lives, he says, they had been walking around in him and breathing in him. That's what he says. It's kind of weird, right? He's clo- God is closer to you than the air in your lungs. That's what the word of God says. But if you stay ignorant of that, if you're ignorant of that fact, if you love, st- if you love things that God hates and you hate things that God loves— if you trust and obey things that are not God, a.k.a. you worship idols. And when someone says to you, if when someone says to you that Jesus is Lord and he died on the cross for your sins, if you don't acknowledge that that's true, even though God isn't far from you spatially or geographically, your relational distance from him will seal your destiny if you don't trust that Christ died on the cross for your sins. If you choose distance from God for yourself now, God chooses outer darkness for you forever. That's what the Bible says. But it doesn't have to be that way. That's the whole message of the New Testament. It doesn't have to be that way for anybody. You may have lived in darkness your whole life, but God comes at some point and he says, come into the light. So much better in here. The light is always better than the darkness, right? You can turn away. Tonight, you can turn away from your sin. You can embrace Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and God will forgive your sins. All of them, the Bible says, because of the death of Jesus on the cross, in your place, on your behalf, and you'll be saved, it says. And then, verse 7 can be true for you in personal experience. You You could say, what great human is there what great man is there? Does Elon Musk, does Vladimir Putin, does Joe Biden have God so near to him as the Lord my God is near to me for whatever I need to call on him for? What do they have? What's that dude's name, Schwab? Everyone's all scared of him. Does he have God? I don't know. I don't know him. doesn't seem like he does, Right? Who cares for whatever reason I may call on him? And what you find there is that the presence of God transforms our wildernesses from places of despair and death, again, like I said a minute ago, to places of significance and growth. That sounds kind of Bible teachery, but it's true. God says, your wilderness would have been a place of despair and death but I can make it actually a place of significance and growth. The nation of Israel that was about to go take the land of Canaan was ready to roll. They had been through God's school. They were not a soft people. They were ready to go do things for the Lord. God knows how to redeem even the most painful experiences, even the things that are our own faults. That is such good news. That's one of the greatest parts of the gospel. Right? You don't have to live with the guilt of your own sins. Some, some, some of us probably in here are actually the dominant thing in our life, whether we admit it or not, is that we're really guilty for the things that we've done. And God loves you. He doesn't want a single human being to live under that. And he's done everything that you need. He can take that off you. You don't have to have that weighing on you for one more night when you try to go to sleep. It's true. Jesus died for that thing you feel guilty for. And he can take it all away. And... There's a hundred people in here 
who know that's true because God's done it for them. The Bible says our suffering can work for us a far more exceeding weight of glory, 2 Corinthians 4, 17. And he says that God works all things together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, Romans chapter 8. So if you're a follower of Christ tonight, Deuteronomy invites us to believe all that at the core of our being and then to live our lives accordingly. And if you're not a follower of Christ here tonight, Jesus invites you to become one forever. And the door is open. And it may stay open for a long time. But as long as it's open, you're invited in. You're invited in. So let's pray and let's respond to the good news of God's grace and forgiveness, even in our failure, by praising him. Let's stand as the worship team comes. I'm just going to pray as they come and set up. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that these aren't just nice things to tell each other, but this is true, Lord. And I pray that above and beyond all the, the counter voices, no one is saying this, Lord, that has a platform, but your word says it. And I pray that your word would just conquer our minds and that we would understand the deep love and grace and forgiveness and joy at the heart of all things, not emptiness and despair, not anger, guilt, hurt, and pain, but joy and peace and love. And I pray that everyone in this room tonight would not escape that. Lord, fill us with your spirit. Draw us more deeply into these things. And uh, help, Lord, just our lives to be dominated by the joy of knowing that we're forgiven. What a great thing, Lord. We thank you that you thought it up and you did it, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey guys, Tom here from the Philly Arnold's podcast. We hope that this teaching from our in-person gathering here at Calvary Chapel of Philadelphia was a blessing to you. If you're listening and you're living in the Philadelphia area and you're looking for young adults ministry to get plugged into, we'd love to see you out. For more information about our ministry or the podcast, visit philyyoungadults.com. God bless you guys.